All right, we're here with Rishi Chulani, founder of The Dark Knot. Rishi, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brock. Thank you, John, for having me on. So we'd love to hear a little bit about how you got started, why you started your company, what you were doing before you started, and why you got into the menswear space. Okay, so I started The Dark Knot about four years ago. Prior to that, I was in finance for about 10 years. So I graduated college in Michigan in 2003. And then from then up until about 2013, I was in banking. And what would often happen was when I was working in banking in Boston and then later on in New York, I'd have these nice suits and ties and I'd have absolutely no idea how to mix and match them. Now, my dad is actually a tailor, so he would you know, provide me with these nicer suits and sh shirts and I'd go out and buy in New York and Boston, and when it came to color coordinating and pattern coordination, I had absolutely no idea where to begin. So, you, you know, if it's like most guys, right, if you give a guy a solid white or a blue or a pink shirt, they know what tie to go with it. Most guys are just going to stick to your classic whites and blues. But the second you throw any pattern in there, whether it's a striped shirt or a checkered shirt or say it's something a little more fancy for a cocktail party like a paisley shirt or a polka dot, they have absolutely no idea how to mix and match patterns and, you know, even colors with other, um, you know, pastels that are a little more sophisticated, like, like a lavender or something or a light green. So I wanted to start a concept that provided style advice to guys. So it wasn't just getting product off a shelf like you do at most places. I wanted an embedded style consultation built into the product. And then on top of that, most nicer ties that I wanted to go out and buy were like $100, $150. So I figured there had to be a way to bridge the gap and make some Yes, felt good, was nicely packaged with that style advice component and price it at a reasonable point, price point, which is why I started the Dark Knot four years ago. So I actually started researching and working on the concept about five and a half years ago. It took me about a year and a half to get the brand started, just working with numerous suppliers and trying to get the right suppliers out here in Hong Kong, which is where I live. And I was looking to secure suppliers in, in the greater China area. So it took me a while to secure the right suppliers. And then once everything fell into place, I decided to go ahead and launch the brand. That's awesome. And did you know anything about that, that side of it, like the manufacturing and finding suppliers before you started? Uh -huh. I literally knew nothing. So what I used to do is I would go online, research like what goes into ties, what the interlining is, how ties are made. I mean, I knew absolutely nothing about fashion or the manufacturing process. I go to high-end department stores, look at the kind of designs that we're selling. I mean, you could obviously see what's kind of selling online, but I wanted to get a sense as to what Ferragamo was selling, Hermes, Thomas Pink, and higher-end brands. So I'd go in see what the designs were like, get a feel for the ties, get a sense as to what kind of packaging they were using. Um, and I really wanted to understand the manufacturing. So I would buy ties from higher end stores and basically rip them up to see what the construction was like inside. And I would basically try and price my ties component by component. So I took a very analytical framework to it. There's obviously the creative element in trying to figure out the right designs and working with a freelance designer who would help tweak designs we got from the factories or create designs from scratch. But there was an analytical component in terms of figuring out component by component how these ties would price out on a cost basis from the shell of the tie to the interlining to 
the workmanship that went in to the cost of the labels that go in the back of the tie, the loops, the tipping, you know, it was a full breakdown of every single aspect. So then as you're breaking those ties down, that led you to Asia. How did you navigate that transition? Because going from banking in Boston, Chicago, Boston and New York is a, it's a pretty big change. Yeah. So I actually grew up in Hong Kong, but I was, again, never... I myself was never directly involved in business. Like I said, my dad's been a tailor for many years, but I was never directly involved. But the thing is, Hong Kong is a hub for Westerners looking to source from China. So there's trade fairs in Hong Kong for different, for various categories, at least two to three times a year. So over the course of a year, you might have 100 trade fairs in Hong Kong for different categories across all product verticals. I'm not just talking fashion. Now for alone you'll have trade fairs that are at least two or three times a year so it's a matter of going to these trade fairs armed with the knowledge that i had about what the, the costing would be for each component trying to get the right pricing at least on a preliminary basis and then starting you know once the pricing seemed reasonable or at least i knew factories were willing to work with small players because keep in mind a lot of these factories are producing ties for like jose bank armani exchange so they're used to seeing orders of like a hundred thousand ties every couple of months and, you know, these brands are working with 10 factories at a time. So they're probably producing half a million or a million ties every few months. So I go in there and I'm like, I want to order 3,000 ties, which for me is a huge deal. For them, it's nothing. So it's about trying to find someone um, who you know is seasoned enough and they've worked with large enough brands where you can trust their quality. But at the same time, they need to be nimble enough where they're willing to buy into your story and into your belief that you can grow the company and provide them with more business down the line. Oh, so yeah, you say people to buy into your story. And, and like you said, a lot of these small brands like yourself are working with uh, places that manufacture ties for, you, you could even say for Hermé and for some of these luxury brands. How, what was the way that you got them to buy into your story? Um, well, basically really demonstrating my knowledge about how these ties are made. I mean, look, as as, knowledge, as knowledgeable as I thought I was for a beginner, I can compare my expertise, or quote-unquote expertise, to what the people in the factory knew, obviously. But they knew I had done my homework. They knew I was taking it seriously. Because a lot of people will just go in there and say, we want to order 1,000 ties, and they're not thinking about MOQs, you know, minimum order quantities from a total production standpoint or by per color. They're not thinking about you know, the composition of the ties and what kind of interlining they want, what kind of tipping they want. And I went in there, I'd broken everything down on the spreadsheet in terms of the level of detail, including, you know, whether I wanted regular length ties, extra long length, what the width of the ties had to be. So I think showing them that I'd done my homework beforehand probably helped. It also helps that a lot of these big factories that do have excess capacity, right? So as much as they'll talk a big game and say, we're only working with bigger brands, if they know they can make an extra few thousand ties a week or whatever it is because of excess capacity. I think if they take you seriously enough, they will take you on. So when you were in this research phase, the planning phase, how long was it like from when you came to the idea from to when you launched and were you working during that time or did you jump all in? I went all in. So I was in banking and then I was done with banking sort of around early to middle of 2000, about early 2013. So I'd already started, I already knew I wanted to start a, a Thailand. This is actually a concept that thought of in New York. So funnily enough, when I was living in New York, I had this idea of creating an algorithm, not that I'm a coder, but I would hire a coder. The goal was to hire a coder and create 
a website with an algorithm where someone could basically take off the, the types of suits they have in their wardrobe. So there'd be a list of like, say, 20 suits, right? Like, or 10 suits, like your solids, pinstripes and checkers and brown, navy and charcoal gray, for example. And then maybe 20 shirts, right? So solid stripe and checkered in five or six different colors. And then based on what you ticked off, the algorithm would come up with matching combinations for every single one. Um, you know, I was still in banking then, so I never ultimately got around to doing that. And then when I did want to start, I realized that most guys are not going to go through like 50 or 100 permutations. Guys want something that's quick and easy to shop with. Um, but when I was fine-tuning that, I was already coming up with, a, with a, sort of like an implementation plan a few months before I got out of banking. Uh, what actually happened was I lost my job. So, you know, banking's been very volatile for like the last 10 years or so. So I was covering Australian um, companies, basically, within banking, and they had to shut the Australia office down. So I, the writing was kind of on the wall I knew was coming. Um, luckily, I got a bit of a package, and that gave me the breathing room to be able to go all in on this. Uh, so from the time I lost my gig till the time I started, it was about 16 to 18 months because I went through a year of bad experiences with factories where every time I thought I found a factory where the prototyping seemed okay, when they did more mass prototyping, the quality just wasn't there or every, or there was one just completely ghosted me. So I thought, I thought that they were going to start prototyping for me and the quality seemed good. I even visited the factory in person and I spoke to the, the head of the factory, to the factory boss. And then they basically stopped replying to my emails like three months into negotiations, just as we were about to start production. Mm -hmm. So it took me a year to find the right factory. It was my it was only on my fourth factory that I actually found someone that was that that ended up being reliable. So when when you actually launched, you had your first uh, inventory ready to ship. It sounds like you had some ideas about marketing that in the early days included maybe maybe some sort of artificial intelligence or algorithm, and then later on, like content marketing or educating customers. Yeah. So what did you actually do to sell the ties once you launched? Yeah, so I think I was, I mean, it was a mixture of, I don't know if you want to call it luck, but luck and grit. So I knew early on and just through reading about how brands were marketing themselves, like small brands or emerging brands that building an audience was key. So while I was searching for factories, I started a blog. Um, sort of like in middle of 2013. It was a men's style blog called Suit Up, Dress Up. So I'd already registered the dark knot, but I didn't think about keeping that content on the dark knot site. I initially had it on a separate blog and I was probably blogging twice a week. So I had a fair number of articles by the time I had launched, probably over 50. And I'd aggressively build out a Twitter following, following people who were already interested in men's style, right? So seeing who the followers were for other large men's style brands or style bloggers and basically <laughs> aggressively adding people because I'm like, I need to get traffic somehow. I'm not going to see this SEO jump right away. Um, so I think building that audience early on definitely helped. Um, of course, the first year, year and a half was still very slow, but it gave me some kind of platform. I was building a newsletter off of it. And then once I launched the brand, and I thought I would get this residual traffic from the blog. I realized it wasn't as effective. So I had to basically import all the content from the blog onto the site. And now everything's hosted on one domain. But it used to be two separate sites. By building that audience ahead of time, engaging with people on Twitter who are interested in style, 
Um, at that point, I hadn't worked with any Instagram influencers or anything. So visually, I was trying to hire like my sister had a friend in New York who's a photographer, like as a, as, as a hobby. And then I would get him to hire like models of Craigslist to wear my ties. It was not the best way to go, but it was the only way I knew at the time. And, you know, with a lot of these models, they might not be that fashion savvy or whatever. So they don't have the right wardrobes or they couldn't afford it. So even if they're wearing like a nice tie, they might even have just nice clothes in their wardrobe. It's not exactly matched well. So it was only later on that I started working with Instagram influencers to get more of that visual outreach. But it started with the blog. And I think the blog is still the core of our content marketing platform. Well, so it seems like you were really at the beginning of two uh, shifts. So one was this kind of like smaller, uh, vertically integrated brand that sells online. So you, so you were at the beginning of that, and you've seen a lot of brands pop up in that space. But then also, uh, you know, the influencer and the, the blogging space really seemed to have boomed in the past like four years. So you were right. at kind of the, the peak of both of those. What was the way that you've started to get involved, like you said, with Instagram, but then it looks like you're also involved with Menfluential and some of those guys. And yeah. so how do you think that this space has really evolved as people are starting to care more about what they look like? Um, I mean, as recently as 10 years ago, people were probably driving like on the New Jersey Turnpike and looking at billboards, right? <laughs> but, you know, billboards and billboards are pretty much dying, even though they're still around. Their impact is a lot less. Print media is obviously a lot less effective. So I just think people feel like they can connect with influencers. You know, um, They want to connect with your everyday Joe, who seems to have made some kind of leap or transformation. And it's through everyday people that you know people need relatability. With celebrities, there was never really any relatability in the past. right? It's just like, all right, I see this guy on screen. He looks great. I'm seeing him wear this suit or tie. Awesome. But there's no real relatability that's like, how can I track or trace my life story to his in any way, shape or form? Whereas if there's an influencer who's like, look, I used to dress like this or I wasn't the most confident and or I had social anxiety or I wasn't the best dressed and I've slowly tweaked my habits or my outlook on life and I've started to dress better. I think people can relate to that. And a lot of these influencers are turning YouTube channels into educational hubs. So it's not just about it being entertaining, it's about it being informative as well. And I think that, you know, because of that reason, influencers have really, you know, taken off in the last few years. And I had come across videos by Antonio and Aaron, and I had actually approached both of them to do a video at the end of 2014. Because in that first year when I launched, sales were really anemic. And I think reaching out to Antonio and having him create a video that featured our brand gave us a huge boost in terms of just traffic and credibility as well. And so, and he, Antonio is great because he's almost like a mentor. Like he would allow me to call him and he'd give me like advice on how I should be optimizing my site. Cause my site in the early days was not the, not the greatest. I thought it was fine, but obviously I didn't know better. And because I saw him as a mentor and as someone that really cared about where the brand was going, I decided to give Menfluential a shot when he told me about it. And then that's how I met Brock and you and, you know, Kyle Ingham and Kyle Borston and a lot of the guys who were there at Menfluential every year. As you work with the different influencers, Instagrammers and YouTubers, what do you think makes sets one apart from another? Because I think it's a very, very big space, but um, whether it's the content or the way that you work with them, what do you think? 
like sets one off for the other? Uh, for the audience or for me as a brand? I'd say from the audience perspective. Um, I think someone that seems genuinely interested in educating them. I think that's the most important is they want to see sincerity. So obviously any influencer, if they're doing it full time, needs to monetize their content at some point. But if they feel like they're getting spammed four times a week with videos that are promoting the same brands over and over again, or they're just sort of repurposing content, you know, and taking a video on five types of shirts you should wear and maybe rewording it and then promoting the same brands again. And people don't want to feel like they're being sold to the whole point of being uh, an influencer effectively is to be able to sort of educate people and then let them have it, it allows people a platform to discover brands it's not intent based like google right where you type in say ties or suits or pants and you're going there with the purpose of buying something when you're searching for blog content or a youtube video you're looking for information out there or inspiration and people want to using that sort of platform at least subconsciously they're looking to discover brands they don't want to be sold to so the whole 80s type of you know, door-to-door or hardcore sales is out, right? It's more about brand discovery. And I think the influencers that allow you to feel like you've been introduced to a brand, I think that, you know, is what sets um, some guys apart from the rest. Obviously, there's the whole personality aspect, how engaging they are on video, how well they've been promoting their YouTube channels by, you know, maybe getting shout-outs with other influencers or some kind of partnership agreements where they can leverage off each other's audiences. But in terms of relatability to the audience, I think it's about that subtle messaging where you're educating them, but you're allowing them to discover a brand without them feeling like it's being forced upon them. Yeah, it, it seems like um, you, you've been pretty experimental with like different types of marketing and, you know, whether it's like organic reach through influencers, paid reach. And then uh, what I've noticed, you know, knowing you over the years and, and also just observing your brand over the past like 18 months, two years is it seems like you guys are really invested in not only producing a lot more of your own content and like in-depth content, but also the look and feel of your, your brand and website. So has that, has that been really intentional and has that paid off? Yeah. So the site has definitely been intentional in terms of, because the product was, and you had told me this and I appreciate it. You had told me like two years ago, you're like, dude, you have a nice product, but your site doesn't reflect that. And I knew that was the case, but I didn't know where to begin, like completely redoing it until I found nicer themes and really thought about the layout and spoken to people who specialize in conversion rate optimization and thought about user flow. So the whole thing was intentional in terms of the aesthetic of the site, matching the aesthetic of the packaging and the logo, it's sleek, black and white, um, you know, like those colors dominating sort of the website and the aesthetic and really thinking about the user flow and trying to understand, looking at heat maps and analytics, why users were maybe dropping off of the checkout process or, because sometimes the numbers can tell you everything, right? They can tell you whether someone is clicking on a certain page more or not, but it's not gonna tell you why. And having too many surveys can be intrusive as well, but the whole thing was very intentional in trying to create a better user experience. And then in terms of content, when we started off, I was probably writing, I still write a lot of my blog posts, but now I have a writer that helps. Um, when I was starting off, I was probably writing like four to 500 word blog posts, and I thought that was detailed. 
Um, but over time, I've realized Google really rewards long-form content. And I do like to research. I'm sort of a geek at heart. And I enjoy writing. It's a creative outlet for me. So I've really taken it upon myself to create long-form, detailed, and hopefully engaging content that's usually two to 3,000 words. Now, instead of doing five or six blog posts a month, I'm probably doing one to two a month, but each one is going to be a couple thousand words or more. And where I can, I try and embed YouTube videos that I've created. So I have a YouTube channel. It's still very small, but you know, as I'm creating more videos for that, I'm trying to embed those videos into relevant articles that I'm creating as well. But the whole thing is about creating this experience for the, con the consumer. So it's not just about you know, viewing accessories on the portal. It's about style education, about being informed. And, you know, then they get on our mailing list and we keep sending them style content either through automated campaigns or to like, or through new campaigns every week with new content and letting them discover more and more about the brand themselves uh, without doing the hard sell. So for maybe every four emails we send, maybe one is promotional, one or two max, usually one and three will be content related. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, the Vaynerchuk like jab jab right hook. Um, yeah, you know, no hard selling. I, I like that. I think that's I think that's the way to go. You know, for for brands these days to kind of act more like uh, you know content creators. You know, and educate first, and then the the sale will come. Um, but yeah, I, it's I about was building that trust, right? Like you want people to feel like they can relate to you and they can trust you. I mean. It's really about building that trust. It's hard to build trust when you're just like, hey, buy my stuff. It doesn't work very well. Yeah, yeah, not not anymore, definitely. I was wondering, as a, kind of shifting topics a little bit, but how, how did you price your ties or how do you choose your pricing? Because it does seem like you're sort of hitting kind of a middle ground where you're not like a, a, a tie bar or a ties.com, but you're also not, um, you know, like luxury level pricing. So... How do you choose the, the actual price of your products? So, I mean, the, this was obviously all very deliberate. Um, I knew we were providing or producing the highest quality ties that we could um, out of China. Obviously, there are going to be some constraints on fabric because these, you know, now we have a made in Italy line as well, but those fabrics are weaved at pre, you know, premium mills in Como. Um, but the ones in China, I mean, the quality is still really high. But we, we knew, right, like these higher end brands, obviously they have way more in terms of expenses, whereas this is directly online. We don't have fixed overhead with rents and, and staff and all that stuff. So we knew the markup would be less than like, say, uh, I would say a close comp to our tires would be Thomas Pink. So Thomas Pink quality, like our quality is probably like 75 to 80% of a Thomas Pink tie, but then the price is like one third. Right, about a third to 40% of a Thomas Pink tie. Because a lot of Thomas Pink ties are like, like $125 or so. And a lot of our ties are 55 with some of our premium ties being around $85. Um, but it was about making luxury affordable. It's more along the lines of uh, Charles Turret or TM Lewin, and that is like middle of the ground. But then I wanted it to be a whole experience with the packaging and the style advice and really paying attention to the weft count of the, of the fabrics that we use to, for the fineness of the silk, down to you know the tipping and the kind of stitching that was going in, reinforced bar tack stitching, things like that to get enhanced durability. 
and then making it affordable to the mass market um, without diluting our margins too much and without making it seem like we're just another Thai seller like you would see on Amazon. Um, so it's like a TM Lewin or Charles Turwitt price range with the bells and whistles, right? With the, with the luxury packaging, with the recommendations for matching attire and all of that stuff. Yeah, but I think there's a lot of room for that because it does seem pretty obvious on the market between the super affordable, the ultra affordable $20 tie and then the department store, you know, $100, $200 plus tie that, uh, you know, that, that my dad's closet is full of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think um, what was important to us is while I understand that 55 is still expensive for a lot of guys, uh, we in an effort to make it uh, more affordable, we provide free shipping globally. So as long as it's not an expedited order, we ship anywhere worldwide for free, regardless of the size of the order. So even if they buy a bracelet for $35 or something, that's going to come with free shipping as well. Or a lapel flower, you know, that's under $30. That's still going to come with free shipping, whether they're ordering from the U.S. or the Czech Republic. It doesn't matter. Because, like, shipping is usually a huge bottleneck, right, for e-com guys. And that's a big advantage we have being in Hong Kong, is that shipping from here is fairly reasonably priced. So I'd rather just have that eat into the margin a bit and give people the option of free shipping. It just makes life so much easier. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. I think people really appreciate that. I, I know I do, at least. Um, yeah. So if you're up for it, we wanted to ask you a series of rapid-fire quick answer questions uh, if you're down. Sure, let's do it. Okay, I'm just going to run through, and uh, you can keep them, you know, just one or two words. Okay. All right, Oxfords or Brogues? Brogues. All right, loafers or sneakers? Loafers. Okay, for style, spring, summer, or fall, winter? Fall, winter. Okay. Jeans, chinos, or trousers? Chinos. Nice. Favorite James Bond, if you have one? Sean Connery. Nice. Uh, notch lapels or peak lapels? Peak. Navy or charcoal for a suit or jacket? Navy, definitely. All right. And last one, morning shower or evening shower? Both. <laughs> gotta do both two showers a day that's luxury i think that's our first both answer <laughs> yeah uh, well thanks for having me on guys thank you john for setting it up as well really appreciate it yeah thanks for staying up late for us yeah it's all good um i was mentally preparing myself for this all evening so <laughs> to make sure i was wired enough <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was, it's, you, you sound good, man. And this will be up. Uh, actually, it, it might be a, a few weeks because we had a couple. We have a couple in the queue, but uh, we'll you know send you a link and everything, um, and we'll we share it on, on our various channels. So, yeah, we'll Perfect. You know. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Talk to you soon, man. Take care. All right. Take care. Take care, John. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of The Cavalier and Brock McGough of Modest Man, and we'll see you next week.